Happy 2019, everyone. I'm Bill Hamblett, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings. This is our first podcast of 2019. Today I've got with me uh, Fleet Master Chief, retired Paul Kingsbury, who's new, still relatively new to our staff. Uh, so, Paul, happy 2019. Happy 2019. How was your holidays? It was fantastic. I was up in northern New Hampshire and Vermont, did a little cross-country skiing with my uh, family, and uh, yeah, drove back on New Year's Day, and, and traffic on 95 wasn't too bad, so uh, I can't complain. Awesome. And you came back with all your uh, appendages in order. I do. It's cross-country, right? cross not downhill, so I, yeah, not taking any uh, huge risks, but yeah, feeling pretty good. Good. Yeah, I was down in Virginia Beach, uh, spending time with family back there and then came up for new year's and uh, had some time here to spend it so very ready good to start off 2019 strong 2019 strong I indeed um so a couple things grabbed my attention today in the news uh, so i was reading through the chinfo clips uh saw the news that uh hii and the navy have reached a, a deal on a two carrier purchase so cvn 80 and cvn 81 the third and fourth class, uh, third and fourth carriers of the Gerald Ford class are going to be bought together as a group or block buy. Uh, the Navy is announcing that this is going to save four billion dollars. Uh, Representative Joe Courtney of Connecticut uh, House Armed Services Sea Power Panel uh, issued a statement about it, as did Senator Kane from Virginia. So good news for uh, for Virginia and uh, and HII, uh, and it sounds like uh, good news for the Navy as well. So that's kind of an interesting that that development has been uh, tracking along. Um, uh, USNI News covered that uh, a number of times over the last six months as the Navy was. Uh, asking to do that, and it looks like they finally got some uh, congressional approval to do that. Uh, another piece of uh, news, uh, we, we talked just before the holidays about Secretary Mattis's departure from the Pentagon, and now we've got uh, Deputy Secretary Shanahan has moved up, at least uh, temporarily, uh, as the acting U.S. Defense Secretary as of uh, 1 January, had his first cabinet meeting yesterday, seated next to the president, so it's going to be interesting to see uh, where he takes the, de the department over the you know, coming months and whether he turns out to be or ends up being uh, you know, the permanent uh, uh, Secretary of Defense. So, um, and then the uh, last thing I wanted to point out was an opinion piece today in Bloomberg by our chairman, Admiral Stavridis, uh, who talked about uh, the New Year's Day message from uh, North Korea's leader Kim Jong-un uh, says he's basically playing an old game and 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 that uh, the the position of the ongoing um, discussion between us and North Korea on denuclearization of the peninsula uh, may be back to where it was before the presidential summit in Singapore last summer so we'll see um, but the North Koreans are very uh, you know they're serious negotiators and they're I, I've often said that they're very very good at, at taking a a pair of twos and and winning in a, you know a hand of Texas Hold'em just about every time. Uh, so be interesting to see where the new uh, we're in this new year where our president and where uh, the new Secretary of Defense, the new uh, national leadership team, moves in terms of uh, the the ongoing discussions with North Korea. So uh, yeah, one of many things that uh, in the geopolitical landscape that's prime yep. for. Uh, some interesting movements over the next year, to say the least. Definitely, definitely. So um, we just finished uh, and, got, and got in the in the mail before the holidays the January issue of Proceedings. So hopefully all our listeners have received that. 
the January issue is always focused on the Surface Navy. Uh, that's time to coincide with the January Surface Navy Association meeting, which is in Crystal City every year. Uh, so that's coming up on the 15th, 16th, and 17th. Uh, and our guest today is retired Vice Admiral Barry McCullough. He was a career surface warfare officer. He is the national president of the Surface Navy Association. He's joining us on the line from uh, downtown D.C. today. So, Admiral McCullough, thanks for coming on the Proceedings Podcast. Oh, it's nice to be here, and I appreciate your invitation uh, and uh, how the Proceedings is dedicated to surface warfare during the month of January when we have our national symposium. Uh, as you brought up. And I'm glad to hear everybody had a good holiday. Uh, I had a very nice one quiet at home, uh, which is uh, nice for me. So I was actually uh, in the East Coast time zone for a substantial period of time. Very good. Uh, so, sir, 2018, I went uh, last year to SNA over there at, uh, in Crystal City. Uh, and, and that happened, you know, four or five months just after the Fitzgerald and McCain collisions. So much of right. the discussion last year was on those two incidents, some of the other uh, incidents that were less, um, you know, deadly uh, in the surface Navy, and and real discussions about readiness. There, the Navy had just published the strategic readiness review and the comprehensive review, so that dominated the conversation last year. Uh, I'm curious, from your perspective, what do you think is going to dominate uh, SNA's symposium this year? Well, hopefully we'll look ahead. I mean, it's always important to go back and, re and review what happened, uh, not only to uh, prevent similar such tragedies in the future, uh, but to review how we might have arrived there and how we're going to go forward from that particular point. And I think uh, Vice Admiral Rich Brown and, and uh, the folks out at uh, Surf War uh, and at Surfland have done a, a remarkable job uh, putting the program together to address uh, deficiencies that might have led, uh, led to those uh, events. And so uh, as we go forward, I think uh, we need to look at, at what's going on globally uh, in the global environment, how the threats uh, that we perceived just a few short years ago I would say have totally changed, uh, and I think that was uh, evident in the national defense strategy and the national military strategy when Secretary then Secretary Mattis uh, spoke about peer players again, specifically uh, the threats posed by uh, Russia and China, and and so I think we need to look ahead and where we're going to take the surface Navy uh, to not only pace the threat. Uh, but hopefully outpace the threat and remain in a uh, position of multi-domain superiority. Sir, I'm curious, um, what are the things that you're hearing about as the head of SNA uh, coming off of last year's uh, comprehensive review and the strategic readiness review? What are the major, you know, sort of checks in the block have happened? And, and what are the things that you think are still yet to really say mission accomplished? Uh, you know, I'll, I'll leave that to my active duty colleagues. I mean, I'm, I believe that's that's theirs to uh, discuss in depth. Uh, I think that uh, how we've improved or reinitiated the surface uh, basic surface warfare officers program and the surface warfare officers uh, professional training uh, curriculum uh, is a huge step in the right direction. 
uh, I think the fact that we're focused on, on training and readiness, uh, not only in the uh, verbiage, but uh, where it counts most, which is in the funding, uh, uh, to address the things that may have contributed uh, to what happened. And, and I think the jury will always be out on that uh, because personnel issues and acquisitions always seem to drive the budget. Uh, and uh, it's hard uh, sometimes to manage where the ops and maintenance money actually goes once it's distributed. Uh, so we need to uh, remain vigilant and ensure that those monies are uh, uh, spent in the manner in which they were intended uh, to improve the readiness and training of this surface fleet. Yeah, so absolutely. So John Corder wrote an article, I think it was last month, uh, about in institutionalizing the comprehensive review, which I thought was really good. He's a uh, you know a nuclear trained surface warfare officer. So the point was, right. hey, a lot of great a lot of great recommend recommendations came out. A lot of great work went into that to. Uh, not only improve the operational readiness, but the material readiness as, as much. So are you seeing yeah. or hearing that um, that is taking from where you sit, sir? I'd say to some degree. Uh, I'd tell you there's still uh, issues with Aegis readiness uh, and uh, in-depth training uh, in the Aegis combat system. I mean, it's the most sophisticated uh, anti-air anti warfare integrated air and missile defense system that's ever been developed uh, and you know it's on all the uh, Aegis destroyers and cruisers and a variant of that goes on the literal surface combat ships uh, of both variants and so you know it's 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 just incumbent upon us uh, to maintain the, the readiness of our combat systems and the training of the operators that actually operate and maintain the system uh, I think it's better than it was. I think it had atrophied, atrophied significantly, uh, and I think we're coming back, but I don't think we're quite there yet. Uh, I think, you know, it's easy to pay attention to uh, HM&E issues because you can see them, uh, and uh, the, the ships have become substantially uh, more complex, uh, and the threats uh, have advanced. So from a from a training and readiness standpoint, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of, a uh, lot's been accomplished, but there's much more to, that can be done. Sir, uh, th that gets to some uh, points that you've brought up in a paper that you've written. We're going to publish as a Proceedings Today article. Uh, we'll publish it just before SNA kicks off. Uh, you titled it The Future Fleet. Uh, and in it, you bring yep. up uh, a number of things. You talk about the global environment. You touched on this a little bit about China increasing its naval power at an unprecedented pace, about Russia continuing to enhance lethality of its naval forces. And then uh, you talk about how uh, the Navy's made a decision to extend uh, the service life of certain surface combatants. So we're now going out 40 years and beyond for many of our uh, crew des uh, uh, hulls. Um, so a lot of daunting tasks there, you know, in, in terms of the environment that we have to operate in, the, uh, the fiscal environment uh, with the, a growing U.S. budget deficit and debt. Um, talk about some of the things. So you, you essentially had um, four or five major points about increasing lethality, networked operations, mission-ready sailors, uh, and then the training piece of it. So um, you mentioned 
Captain Wayne Hughes's uh, fleet fa- fleet tactics, um, his his uh, uh, advice to always fire effectively first. So, wh- what kinds of things are happening in the surface Navy to increase lethality and to get to the point where the Navy can always fire effectively first? Well, you know, there's 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 a there's a lot lot going on, and you spoke about the threats. Uh, sophistication uh, of our potential adversaries uh, has increased substantially uh, in the areas of electronic warfare uh, and cyber warfare, uh, or I'll say multi-domain cyber cyber operations. Uh, We we used to talk about electronic warfare a lot uh, leading up to the end of the Cold War. that went uh, dormant for a substantial period of time, uh, and, and now it's a real threat to us. So I applaud the Navy for its uh, efforts in uh, approving and funding uh, the Surface Warfare Electronic uh, Warfare Improvement Program, SeaWhip, uh, uh, and a smaller version of that SeaWhip uh, Light to go on smaller combatants. Uh, to replace the uh, SLQ-32 EW system that's been around since the mid-'70s. So, so that was a huge step in the right direction uh, to get the passive end of it done and, and now moving on uh, to the active side. Uh, there's been a lot of work done in cyber warfare uh, across all cyber domains, which I'll uh, says network operations, uh, network uh, surveillance, and network attack, uh, and and how those operations are are carried out, uh, both uh, strategically, operationally, and tactically. So I think I think there's a, a lot been done in those areas uh, to combat where our potential adversaries uh, are headed. Um, weapon systems in the past, you designed a, a missile to shoot down an uh, air target or uh, a missile or a gun to uh, neutralize a surface threat or a torpedo or, or a depth charge and neutralize a, a subsurface threat. We're magazine limited. As, as you all know, with the Mark 41 VLS system, you only have so many holes on a, on a given platform. And so how do you develop uh, weapons that are multifunctional, uh, that can carry out a, a myriad uh, of uh, uh, counter threats or attacks uh, instead of just uh, against one, one particular threat set? Uh, so I think that the Navy's gone a long way uh, with that, uh, with one of their uh, previously surface to air only uh, capabilities. Uh, the upgraded uh, land attack missile uh, continues to be important, uh, and you know I think we need to go to the, 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 the to digital uh, seekers on those weapons instead of analog seekers to allow them to be more rapidly upgraded. And I think the Navy's reviewing that. Uh, another area that has gone dormant for some time uh, is we depended on low observable uh, uh, capability uh, to uh, 
to be the, the be-all and end-all of uh, the reduction of potential detection uh, by an enemy. Uh, and that, that was good for uh, a decade or two, uh, but now we need to look at uh, the full spectrum of camouflage concealment, uh, decoy, and deception uh, because the landscapes become markedly more complex uh, in the electromagnetic field specifically. And we worked on, for some period of time, uh, radar, decoys, uh, simulated acoustics, and simulated data link capability. Uh, and that, that course needs to be continued and invigorated because you have to be able to uh, confuse an adversary that has the potential to launch a whole lot uh, or many more uh, weapons at you than you have the capability uh, to take out 1v1. Uh, and there's also the cost element there. The uh, interceptors and the, and the weapons we use sometimes are substantially more expensive than the, the ones that are being launched at us. Uh, so you've got to be able to uh, confuse the enemy. We have to look at how do we improve magazine capability. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of uh, discussion over the last several years about electromagnetic weapons, so read rail guns and lasers specifically. Uh, you know, I, I don't know where rail gun is. Uh, I know it's improved since I was on active duty. Uh, to what degree we've been able to, to develop that and productionize it uh, I think there's still a lot to be done. Uh, in the laser area, there's been substantial improvements uh, with fiber lasers uh, and spectral beam combining uh, and the ability to put uh, a lot of energy on a potential target. Uh, to this point, I think there exists the ability to eliminate uh, unmanned aerial uh, systems uh, in small boats or to neutralize them, I won't say eliminate them. Uh, but we need to continue to develop that capability. Uh, I think the Navy is working to field uh, a fully integrated capability on, a, on, on one or two DDGs in the next couple of years uh, with these spe uh, specific lasers. So I, th I think there's a lot that needs to be done. So I think those uh, are all. Oh, sorry. Hey, uh, I think those are all great points to hear. To, you know, I often hear about developing technologies and things coming out in the next few years. Um, now, having retired, I don't get to peek behind the curtain as most of us do to kind of see capability development and uh, kind of the state of things. But to the uh, probably to the uh, the novice observer about what's going on in the world, I read the headlines and what do I see? I see. You know, a China building heavy force structure pretty rapidly. I see their capability to project power not only from the sea against the sea, but from the shore against the sea. I see an article on a rail gun that we're still working on. They've got it on a ship at sea already. So it could quickly make you go, okay, um, are we are we set to offset that? Or is the pace there? Is the sense of urgency in the uh, not only the military sector, but the industrial center sector that uh, supports these capabilities is it there? Do we get it? Are we developing this stuff fast enough? Or are we being outpaced? You know, that, that's, that's an interesting observation. Uh, the, the acquisition process is pretty cumbersome under the uh, FARs and the DFARs, as you all well know. Uh, 
there are other transactional authorities that can be used uh, to obtain capability or at least prototypes of capability uh, more rapidly. Uh, industry's ready to, ready to do it. Uh, you know, the laser system I spoke of is one of CNO's uh, prime rack, rapid acquisition uh, capability targets. Uh, so I think the will is there uh, with the uh, with the with the services. Uh, I know the will's there with industry. Uh, it's just we got to uh, figure out how to team better and get the results, uh, speed the fleet, if you will, uh, much faster. So, sir, you are now the vice president of strategy and business development at Lockheed Martin Rotary Mission Systems. So you're on the the industry side of things now. I'm just curious from your perspective, you know, having been a carrier strike group commander, uh, having been the 10th fleet commander and now moving over to the industry side, are there, is there any low hanging fruit in terms of, uh, being able to, you know, more rapidly acquire systems, uh, develop technology and, and get it through the RDT and E and get it to the fleet faster? Or is it, in other words, is that, that, uh, acquisition system is it so cumbersome that it's that it's broken, or are there ways that that, that it can be improved and it is being improved? And are there are there low hanging fruit to to do that? Yeah, I also spent almost five years in the NA organization, culminating in, in the NA. So, uh, yeah, there are ways to do it. The, the system's cumbersome, but it's workable. Uh, and like I said, with the other transactional authorities or the mid-tier uh, transaction authorities, there's ways to go about uh, getting capability uh, to the fleet faster. Uh, and both industry and, and, and the oper- operators have got to be willing to take some risk. Uh, you know, I, I used the laser thing as an example. Uh, the Navy wanted to put the laser system on two different DDGs in a laser system out at Wismer uh, as a ground-based test facility. Uh, and uh, that program had, had some trouble in Congress. And, I mean, this is all a matter of public record. Uh, so, How many years ago, sir? Uh, that was over the last year and a half. Um, so there's, there's ways to do this. But both uh, the services and industry have got to ensure, have to ensure uh, that the legislature, that the people that control the money on in Congress, uh, are fully on board with where we're trying to go. Uh, because they still have the power to purse strings, and they can stop programs. Uh, and that's more or less what happened with this program. The capability is mature enough to take to sea, uh, and you need to get it in, in a maritime environment because you can only uh, develop and test and model and simulate to a certain degree uh, before you have to take a weapon system to sea and see how, how it's going to work. I mean, you know, years ago when, when the Aegis system was developed, we had Norton Sound. And we took the system to see on Norton Sound and could test it. Uh, I don't have anything like that today. Uh, so uh, to be able to put a system on a ship and then have a system ashore uh, that you can, uh, when problems are identified afloat, that you can try to work through uh, ashore, I think is critical uh, 
uh, for speed to capability uh, to the operators. Uh, but but there's a certain amount of risk when, when you get down that path, and, and the services and industry have got to be willing to take that. Uh, and the industry uh, invests a lot of money in this technology uh, to, to try to develop it to some degree of maturity uh, to demonstrate it to the services, and I think that's important that industry keeps doing that. Uh, and one of the things I used to tell people when I when I came to came here uh, is that don't take them a PowerPoint brief. Develop something that they've asked for and show them in a demo. Uh, and we've done a lot of that. Uh, so uh, I think that's the way uh, to get ahead. And then use the alternate uh, transactional authorities as required and as the the system. Uh, and the directions and the statutes allow uh, to develop these into uh, operable prototypes that can be rapidly productionized. Got it. Uh, so one of the things that, uh, I, as a, a prelude to SNA, uh, last month, Admiral Boxhall, who's N96, who's in a job that you had while you were on active duty, as you mentioned, working in the N8 organization, and he previewed to the strategy discussion group uh, in D.C. in Crystal City. Uh, it was around the third or fourth, I think, of uh, December. Uh, a briefing right. that he's going to give, you know, at SNA about the future for uh, future uh, force structure. Uh, and it's, right. he, you know, I, this is greatly reduced cliff notes here. But this, essentially, he said, "Look, right now we have the Navy has." You know, a fair number of large surface combatants, uh, highly capable, manned, um, you know, so cruisers and destroyers, primarily what he was talking about with some smaller uh, combatants like the LCS. Uh, and what we're moving towards, the, the structure that he was talking about moving to in the future over the next decade and a half is one where you have fewer of those uh, large manned combatants and a lot more unmanned combatants that are in the medium to small, small, medium, and large that that allow you to put sensors out in the battlefield and allow you to take some of your weapon systems and get them off the manned platforms so you're distributing that lethality out in a, in a broader uh, geographic area. And the manned combatants uh, can control the unmanned uh, platforms. Uh, it can control the weapon systems and the sensors on those uh, on those platforms, uh, and that allows you to uh, kind of saturate the battle space, both in, in capability of, of sensing the battle space and understanding where the adversary is, but then also being able to engage. Uh, I, I'm curious, um, where do you see the the next couple of um, you know major challenges to getting to that force structure? Uh. Good question. Um, so, you know, I'll, I'll tell you that the first challenge uh, exists within the service, and this is my opinion, uh, because once you have a program, you're going to continue to execute on that program, uh, and it's hard to stop or redirect programs, uh, and that's going to be necessary to develop the uh, force structure to Admiral Boxel spoke spoke to, because you're not going to get an increase in budget. Uh, you know, the last two years overall for the Defense Department have been uh, very good. 
uh, you've now got a divided government uh, starting today, uh, and the parties have different views on how much is enough money for defense. And, and so I'd say the, the odds of the budget continuing to increase for the Defense Department are probably not good. Now, hopefully they remain at least constant in real, uh, in real dollars. Uh, so you're going to have to reprogram money to get to the force structure uh, that Admiral Boxel spoke to. Uh, so that, that's the fiscal part of it. Uh, the technology part of it, uh, with advances in electronics and microelectronics, uh, you can uh, take what used to be a, a sensor or uh, uh, some kind of electronic capability that was rather large uh, and, and put it in uh, a form factor that will fit on a much smaller platform. So read that as a, you know, a multifunction antenna or... Uh, some kind of transmitter or some kind of guidance system for a weapon, uh, that stuff can be uh, put in the right form factor to put on smaller platforms. Uh, that also goes back to uh, the decoys and deception because if you have more uh, assets because they're of less cost, uh, the ability for a potential adversary to target all of those assets the difficulty of that goes up asymptotically. Uh, so uh, from, the, from that perspective, it, it's all executable. Uh, the, the issue is going to be uh, command and control. And how do you network all those unmanned platforms uh, into a, uh, a manned ship, airplane, some kind of platform to control them. Uh, you can always give them a certain amount of autonomous capability. Uh, there's been autonomous helicopters developed that, uh, that uh, did a lot of work in Afghanistan to get cat, uh, convoys off the road. Uh, so uh, unmanned autonomous technologies come a long way. Uh, but sooner or later, you still have to control that thing. Yeah, particularly if you're making a weapons decision, it's going to be lethal, right? If you're if you're making a kill decision, right. that there's... especially if you're going to make a, uh, an engagement decision. Uh, so uh, we need to continue to work on uh, not only interoperable and fully networked capabilities, but redundancy of the network. So uh, you know most of the way we. Uh, command and control at this point uh, is uh, through through the RF spectrum, and there's challenges to that in today's environment. Uh, so, uh, what are the alternative paths you're going to use to execute command and control uh, in a networked operation? And you can't just start with a clean sheet and start uh, start all over again, because it's got to be. Uh, reverse engineered, if you will, or interoperable with the fleet that's at sea today to our earlier discussion, uh, we've extended the uh, service lives of ships out to 40 or 50 years. Uh, so all this stuff has to be uh, be able to retrofit or retro-integrate with what's at sea. Uh, and, th and that's a challenge. Uh, 
because if you're going to execute uh, uh, a kinetic operation or even a non-kinetic operation, uh, somebody has to have the, 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 the ROE to, to execute that mission. And I think we're a long way from a policy perspective uh, from letting an unmanned a vehicle to make that decision on its own. Hey, sir, uh, just to change gears, you also wrote about uh, you know sure. the importance of, yes, capabilities, technology, but also having mission-ready sailors trained operationally. Uh, and when I say sailor, I mean officer and enlisted because uh, they both need to be trained to operate. Um, so my time at Fleet Forces, you know, we were, you know, uh, investing in ready, relevant learning to make improvements yep. in the technical, you know, make it more efficient, make it more effective from a management perspective. Um, but also the fleet was starting to talk more about, hey, um, fleet self-sufficiency, reinvesting in the technical management skills of the enlisted force that uh, many, including myself, have felt have eroded or become misfocused over time. And we've also done some time on there's a warfighting mindset that goes along with this, too. So this talk of in introducing or building, quote unquote, toughness uh, and strength and resiliency in uh, in our fighting force. So. What do you see in there, and uh, how do you feel about where we're going with uh, not just technical training, but uh, the investment in self-sufficiency uh, within within the surface force, which is so important to make sure you get platform to operating area, can maintain it on operating area, and have systems that can de develop uh, kinetics at time of engagement? Yeah. Thanks for that question. It, you know, we've come a long way uh, – Master Chief, for one, where you and I were, uh, where you took a technical manual, read it, uh, and and then opened the cabinet or pulled the device apart, and oops, didn't quite look the way the technical manual explained, uh, and or what the PMS card said, and the odds of successfully completing the maintenance went from a high confidence level to something less, uh, and. You know, I think the the way uh, today's generation, so the folks that are at sea or in the Navy, uh, or all the services for that matter, operating the equipment, uh, learning in a totally different manner uh, than my generation did. Uh, and, and what we've seen is we've learned a lot from gaming technology, to be honest with you. Uh, and how to take that technology uh, with live virtual and constructive uh, capabilities uh, for, for operator training. For maintenance training, uh, it's, it's the same, same gaming type technology, but the operator can actually view how the maintenance procedure is going to unfold when he opens a cabinet or, or, or disassembles a piece of machinery. And so they can uh, continuously train on how to maintain the equipment. Uh, the, the graphics and, and the ability to emulate what's actually in the machine uh, are, are just phenomenal. Uh, and so that enables the, the, the sailors, uh, and I agree, sailors or everybody goes to sea in a ship, uh, to maintain their, their uh, proficiency uh, and then, when needed, maintain the operational capability uh, of the specific ship, airplane, submarine, uh, whatever. 
so I, I think that that's all in, in, in incumbent in uh, when we have operators at sea to maintain a proficiency, which I agree with you is degraded over. Uh, I think it's better now than it was a couple of years ago, but I think it's degraded overall. Yeah, I'm with uh, you. Schoolhouse. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh no, I was just, I'm with you. I, I had the opportunity to see some of these technologies that are out there. Uh, I think when we came through the '90s, remember we went through that revolution in training, computer-based training. Um, I think people lump that all in together, but if you got eyes on a mobile reconfigurable training system, and I can configure those several big screen TVs to look like, you know, a Virginia class torpedo room, yep. and I can certify a submarine crew to do mission, and then that submarine does strike mission. Um, the, we're not talking computer-based training. This is something different. This is something promising. And uh, from what I got to see at my time at Fleet Forces with uh, what we were moving forward with some of the capabilities for ready, relevant learning, um, I think you will get operational proficiency. And to your point, um, there is application to the maintenance side as well that I saw some uh, some things, technologies you can do with an iPad and holding it up to a quick acting watertight door. Uh, it's pretty phenomenal stuff. Yep. Hey, and, sir. And you, you, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, the point on the operational training is is absolutely spot on. I mean, you can reconfigure uh, a training system to to look like whatever particular ship airplane or or uh, a submarine you you want it to. Uh, it's it's all in the software, uh, and you know you can uh, do individual operator training at at, at their station. Or you can do unit level training with a with a ship or an aircraft, uh, and then you can integrate it into into complex multi unit uh, integrated operations, uh, and it allows a lot of things uh, to be done uh, peer side that historically we could not do. Uh, and you know when you got to take a whole crew underway with multiple ships to, to do an exercise. Uh, and you know, you figure the first three days, you're figuring out how the comms work, and then you work uh, to get up to some integrated level. By the time you everybody goes their separate ways back into port, uh, now you can start at the pier, get the ships and and the folks ready to go, uh, and by the time they go to sea, they're, prof they're proficient in unit level training and actually can conduct multi uh, complex operations and training. Uh, so uh, you know. The, and it's everything, like I said, from the individual to the unit level uh, uh, to multi-unit level. And that, that applies whether it's uh, training with ships or training with Marines ashore or training with uh, the soldiers or airmen. It, it, it doesn't matter. You, it's all the same technology, and it's uh, pretty much interchangeable. I mean, if you guys look at what's going on with the F-35 uh, Bs and Cs, that come into the Navy, they do absolute mission rehearsals before they go fly. So it's not just a simulator and learning how to fly an airplane, it's how do you execute the mission. Uh, so the training is, uh, you know, it's, it's really important. You've got to have the sailors that are ready to operate uh, this technically complex machinery uh, the nation's provided them to go fight and win the nation's wars. Yeah, and these simulators, to me, an important point is they provide the opportunity to fail and learn without the consequences of real-life failure. Yeah, good point. Good point. Hey, uh, totally agree. 
Sir, we're running out of time here. I just wanted to give you one last question, if you'd give a a quick answer to this one. So we're we're leading into the Surface Navy Association's annual symposium coming up uh, later this month, 15 to 17 January in Crystal City. You are the president of uh, the Surface Navy Association and a retired three-star surface warfare officer. For our younger uh, listeners out there, is it a good time to be a surface warfare officer in the Navy? Uh, you know, it, I'll say it's a target-rich environment. This is probably the best time uh, I've seen since I entered the Navy at the Academy in 1971. So that seems like a million years ago uh, to be a surface warfare officer. Uh, the technology is great. The people are great. Uh, it, it's just a great time uh, to be a surface warfare and execute the missions the nation's given those folks. All right, sir. Thanks. Uh, so, Vice Admiral Barry McCullough, uh, the head of the president of the Surface Navy Association, sir, uh, thanks for writing for us. We'll publish your piece uh, on as a Proceedings Today article on the 14th of January. Uh, this conversation and that article are a great prelude to the SNA symposium that kicks off on the 15th of January in Crystal City. Uh, thanks again for coming on the show, and we look we uh, look forward to seeing you in Crystal City, but also wish you and the, the association a really great show this year. Thanks very much. It was great to, to sit with you all this morning. All right, sir. Thanks a lot. And uh, to our audience, uh, thanks for tuning in for the first show of 2019. Remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. See you next week.